We are going to finish our study in the book of James this morning, though I hope that doesn't mean you'll stop reading James. Now that you know the book really well, that you would continue to read it and soak up its wisdom, and as James says, not just hear the wisdom, but do do the wisdom as well. Good, you've been paying attention so, please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. This is a strange ending, if we're honest with each other. Something about oaths and then praying for the sick and then chasing after wayward sinners. And common... Wisdom about the book of James is that it's a collection of proverbial wisdom. And yet you start reading it and you see some themes and you do do see some cohesiveness. And we have made the case from the very beginning that James is not a book of disconnected wisdom, but that there's a, a purpose, there's a theme running through the entire book. And... If we keep that context in mind, then the ending of James will make more sense, and it's even going to help us interpret a couple difficult passages here. The title of the sermon is Restoring the Sacred, Restoring the Sick, and Restoring the Sinner. Why end the book on this theme of restoration? Because the entire book has been predicated on the idea that Christians find themselves in the middle of a great battle, a great struggle. Persecution from the world and the world's system tempts us, weighs down on us, and yet persecution and worldly wisdom inside of us also tempts us and weighs down on us. And we're caught in this wine press And there's temptation to be weak and to give in to the world's system 
to give in to the flesh, to live this double-minded type of life where, yes, I love God and I love Jesus and I want to follow Him, but I'm tempted also to give in to the world. If you can't beat Him, join Him. And as American culture was very Christian in the past, it was easy to live out the Christian walk. You just kind of went with the flow. And now our society is turning from the Word of God, turning from Christianity. If you go with the flow today, you are going to find yourself living an unrighteous life. If this morning you feel that crunch of the world bearing down on you and your own residual sin nature bearing down on you. You feel fatigue and you're weak and you feel spiritually weak. And sometimes you feel you're not even sure how you could go on. And even the videos that we just saw and you see the trouble in this world and it becomes overwhelming, then you're not alone. And God has you here for a reason today. He has a special word for you here at the end of the book of James. This persecution, this pressure can lead to us letting down our guard and saying, good, good enough. The Christian life's hard. We're doing good enough. And that's exactly when our flesh or the world will take over. And it'll start in small ways, but it'll become bigger and bigger and bigger if we give sin a foothold in our lives. So when we get to James 5.12, it seems like this, this command to avoid swearing oaths is just coming out of left field. Where is this coming from? What does this have to do with anything we've been reading? In fact, many of your English Bibles give verse 12 its own paragraph. Look, look in your Bible. Maybe your Bible gives it its own paragraph. It doesn't know, the translators didn't know if they should connect it back to verses 7 through 11 or should we connect it to 13 through 20? And there is no seemingly obvious connection. And again, the temptation is just to say, well, then this is just a proverbial bit of wisdom James is wrapping up the letter, and he's like, oh, wait, by the way, don't swear oaths. I'm running out of room on the scroll. I need to just squeeze that in. But that's not what James is doing here. He would not have said above all if it was just a side thought. And yet, above all seems over the top to us. Above all. Out of everything you've told us, James, above all, don't swear oaths. Some questions hit my mind as I was preparing the sermon. I'll give you these questions so you can kind of chew on them, and then we'll answer those questions. Question number one, where did this verse even come from? Again, there's nothing in the entire letter that hints at this theme. All the themes he's covered come up again and again and again watching what you say, not being double-minded, not persecuting the poor. But this is the first time we've heard of not swearing oaths. How does it fit in the context of the letter? Do we give it its own paragraph, or does it fit in the flow? 
And why does James say, above all? Normally, that is a phrase reserved for the most important thing I want you to remember. So let's answer these questions together. Because we've made the case from the very beginning that James is a cohesive book, that it is well thought out and planned, that there's a logic and a reason, reasonableness that connects all the ideas. We just need to work a little harder, dig a little deeper. There's some clues in the original language there that you can't see in your English Bible, and I'll draw that out for you this morning. So first, where did this verse come from? Remember, James has been drawing his wisdom specifically from Leviticus 19, verses 11 to 18. I'm going to read those verses to you, and you will hear so much of what has been preached through the book of James in the last few months. Leviticus 19.11 You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. There's the not swearing oaths. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. Have we not talked a lot about op- oppression the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. James condemned those who didn't pay the day laborer his fair wage. Moving on to verse 15. There is a verse 14 in there. It says not to put a stumbling block before a blind man or curse a deaf man. That's just wrong. You know. <laughs> You shall do no injustice in judgment. You should not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great or the rich. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. We've heard that theme in James. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. Right? We covered that a couple weeks ago. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, which he's going to cover the end of the book. Yes, you need to go after a wayward sinner and reprove him. But shall not incur sin because of him. Don't let your neighbor's sin, even if it's committed against you, tempt you to fall into sin. We covered that last week. Remember he said, do not complain gripe or seek after revenge or vengeance. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. James calls this command to love your neighbor the royal law of Christ, the law that trumps all other laws. James has also been drawing from the teaching of Jesus, his half-brother, as we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon series. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem Council. He was the leader of the early church. And his epistle has more direct quotes from Jesus than any other epistle in the New Testament. Matthew 5.33, 
again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Jesus is quoting Old Testament scripture, and then Jesus says, but I say to you, and by the way, Jesus is the only one who gets to quote the Bible and then say, but I say to you, amen? He is the Word incarnate. When He speaks, Scripture pours forth. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Right? I heard some chuckles. You can pay good money and have the white turn to black, but it doesn't last. (laughs) But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Apparently, this is very important to Jesus as well. It was common in that day for people to swear an oath to mask their deceitfulness. Maybe to engage in a business deal and they didn't have written contracts so they would swear an oath. Remember when God made an oath with Abraham, made a a covenant with him, he swore an oath on his own name And then it was customary to take some animals and sacrifice them to the Lord and cut them in half and then walk through the pieces. And the idea was that if I break the oath, may what has happened to these animals be done to me. Today we sign on the dotted line and then if somebody doesn't make good on their contract, we call our lawyers. And we hope the legal system will will settle it or not to take matters into our own hands. But we have these sayings in our own culture today. You know, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave. Uh, What's the one about cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? Remember? Remember that one? The boy who cried wolf. No, I mean it this time. And if you're somebody known to be untrustworthy and dishonest, then you need something to fall back on, to let people know, this time I'm not lying. And people would swear these oaths, but they know, as God-fearing people in some degree, that it's wrong to swear an oath on God's name if you don't intend to make good on the oath. And so instead of using God's name, they would use everything else they could think of associated with God. Heaven, earth, I swear by the temple, I swear by the gold in the temple. I swear by every hair on my head I am telling the truth, and if I'm lying, may every hair turn gray and fall out. And since it didn't turn gray and fall out, I must be what? Well, telling the truth, right? It's proof that I'm telling the truth. And this is evil. This is wrong. But this had become commonplace in the culture. And 
James is telling us that under the pressure of persecution from the outside and persecution from the inside, don't give in to what the world does, even if what the world is doing has crept into the church and into the body of believers. We are to be different and set apart. The church is to be a refuge from that kind of behavior. When I speak to you, you should assume you are hearing truth. And when you speak to me, I should assume I'm hearing truth. Jesus is not saying, and James is not saying, that we cannot ever swear an oath, but to make the swearing of oaths sacred. Sacred. We're restoring the sacred. You take something sacred and you do it all the time and you do it haphazardly and flippantly and you drag the sacred through the sewage. We swear an oath in a Christian marriage. That is an appropriate place to swear an oath. Your vows, your sacred vows. Dearly beloved, we gather here in the sight of Almighty God and these witnesses, right? We swear an oath when we take the witness stand. And it, I mean, our country's turning its back on God, so I can't imagine how much longer that's going to be allowed. But isn't that interesting that it still puts the fear of God into people's hearts on the witness stand, and the courts recognize that, and so they make you swear on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Even unbelievers will swear that oath in court, and they don't say, wait a minute, I don't believe in God, I'm not going to swear this oath. I swore an oath the day I was ordained. Many of you were here, you heard the oath I took. Those are proper legitimate times to swear an oath. Paul swore, swore an oath in Romans 9.1, I am telling the truth in Christ. He could just say, I'm telling the truth. Why, Paul, sometimes when you write Scripture, you don't tell the truth? No. He's emphatically, emphatically, because he doesn't do it often, when he does do it, it takes our awareness up a higher notch. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know what he says after that. But you could look that up if you'd like. He's actually saying that if it were all possible, he would trade in his salvation to see his fellow Jews saved. Really, Paul, you would trade in your salvation to see others saved. Said, yes, that is how much I love my fellow brethren, my fellow Jewish brethren. That if there were any way possible I could trade in my salvation for theirs, I would do it. I am not lying. I am telling the truth in Christ. And the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth in me. He's just invoked two members of the Trinity in his oath. God himself made an oath on his own name. So if God says it's wrong to swear an oath, then God's violated his own command. So he's not saying never swear an oath, only to swear oaths where it's appropriate, and if, only on the name of God. And if you're going to swear an oath as God is your witness, 
It better be the truth. It had gotten to the point in their culture where people's word didn't matter for anything anymore. And really, isn't it becoming that way in our culture? You watch TV and you listen to politicians speak. I don't even know what to say because you know six months from now they could say, "My, my idea has evolved on that position. The church cannot and should not be that way. My family's going to go see the comedian Tim Hawkins, and he says, you know, in the church, it's let your yes be yes and let your no be, I'll pray about it. (laughs) If you don't intend to sign up for the ministry, tell the person, no, I'm not going to be able to do that ministry. But you're afraid they're going to think less of you or think you're not holy or think that you don't love them or you don't care about their ministry. And so you say, oh, I I need to pray about that. Now, earnestly, you need to pray about that. But tell people, you know, right now I'm leaning towards no. I don't want to overextend myself. All right, my first priority is to the Lord and then to my family. And, but if it's the Lord's will for me, I'm going to go before I'm in prayer. I'm going to ask other believers for some counsel and then I'll get back to you. But right now it's, it's probably a no. That's much better than I'll, you know, I'll pray about it. Now you get to say no without having to say no, and you look really holy. So, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. If you say you're going to be there at a certain time, be there at a certain time. You know, your friends call you up, and I'm especially speaking to young people because we see them do this all the time. And they get invited to things. Oh, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, You're not going to go. And you just get used to it. And you know, well, they're they're not going to be there. If they are going to be there, they say, can I get a ride? (laughs) And we teach ourselves to become liars. And if there's one thing other than loving, the Christian church should be known for. It should be truth. Whatever they say about us, and they probably find truth-telling annoying in a world full of deception and lying and double-talk. If we're persecuted and people don't want to be part of the church because all they do is tell the truth in there, well, there's worse things to be hated for. So then why does James say above all? I think... I think we've kind of figured that out. Taking a false oath before God in order to leverage God's character in your favor for the purpose of masking or hiding your own deceit is incredibly offensive to God because it profanes His holy name. God is truth, and in Him is no darkness. God cannot lie, the Scriptures tell us. We are the liars, as Paul said. Let God be found truthful in every man a liar. In fact, it's the enemy of God, Satan himself, who is the father of lies. Lying is bad enough, but when we drag God's name into it, 
it's incredibly offensive. For James, it is the ultimate example of the double-minded sinner. On the one hand, you claim to fear God because you're appealing to His name and His character, but only for the purpose of making yourself look good and honest in front of people. Double-mindedness. He has been talking about that the entire letter, that a true Christian is working towards single-mindedness in Christ, to think God's thoughts after him and to behave the way Christ behaved. Now, I know this swearing of oaths isn't common in our culture. I mean, kids say, I swear to God, I swear to God, and it's wrong. You need to correct your kids to not use the Lord's name in vain. But we have other things we do in our culture. And I ask you this week to think about our culture and what would be the equivalent of swearing oaths. What is commonplace and accepted in our culture, even though it's wrong, that we would be tempted just under the strain of our post-Christian culture and under the strain of our own flesh that wants to be liked by the world and wants to be accepted by the world, what are the kinds of things we could easily find ourselves doing? What would our James 5.12 be if James wrote an epistle today? Elevating your coolness on your Facebook page? I don't know. Think about it. I could make a list, and if your thing's not on my list, then you don't feel convicted. So this is the hard work of the Christian life. You hear the sermon, and you go home, and you say, how does this apply to my heart directly? Where am I tempted to lean on my identity with Christ on the one hand, but on the other hand, turn my back on Him? And hey, everybody's doing it. No one's really going to knock you for it. I believe this is why this verse does fit in the context of the chapter and the whole letter. James is warning. He had just warned persecuted Christians, right, last week. Warned us not to complain against one another. We saw that word complaining wasn't the typical word for complain. It's more of this moaning and grumbling against each other saying, well, I'm going to get even, and I deserve justice here in the church because so-and-so treated me poorly. And he says, don't do that because the judge is at the door and you don't want to fall under judgment for Christ to return and find the bride of Christ. What's the term? Being bridezilla. How ugly and embarrassing. He's not saying the kind of judgment that you would lose your salvation, the kind of judgment that every careless word that comes from our mouths, even as believers, every act will be judged in some way that is hard for us to understand. Our justification is covered by our faith in Christ, but every deed and every word and every thought as Christians will be judged in some way. Secondly, he's warning Christians not to adopt the ways of the world. He understands that 
The Christian walk is difficult and the world is not helping us. In fact, the world is encouraging us to live worldly. And a day is coming when the encouragement will even change to, you will live like the world or suffer the consequences. And so he's telling us, above all, don't give in to temptation. Don't be like the world. Don't let the swearing of false oaths enter the church. It's double-minded. Don't name the name of Christ and then use His name to lie, to cover your tracks. Taking false oaths was a particularly heinous but all too common example of double-mindedness and improper use of the tongue and defrauding of your neighbor. Hasn't James covered all of those themes in his letter? Is there a worse example of improper use of the tongue than to say, I swear by God's name even though I know I have no intention of keeping my promise? Remember he said, with our mouth we, we curse another man who's made in God's image. And he said, can a, can a fountain pour forth good water, fresh water and toxic water? No. And it's defrauding one's neighbor in the worst possible way. We're, we're brothers in Christ. And I want to enter a business deal with you or, or, or contract with you in some way. And you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know too much about you or I've heard rumors. Look, as God is my witness, I will make good on this. And so they say, well, if God's your witness, then I have to trust you. And then you defraud them. This isn't a small thing. This is a big thing. So James says, above all. So again, I encourage you to take the time to consider what kind of double-minded practices are common in our culture and even unfortunately has crept into the church where the church kind of turns a blind eye to it. And let's be careful not to adopt the ways of the world and bring it into the family of God. Beloved, this has to be a refuge from the world here. When unbelievers come into the church, they should be welcomed and yet at the same time feel a little uncomfortable because they're like, this isn't like out there. There's, there's a different standard here. I, I feel it. I see it. I experience it. Sinners are welcome here. Sin is not. Right? We don't look the other way and we extend grace but not give each other an excuse to sin. Well, nobody's perfect. You turn your back on my sin, I'll turn my back on yours. Compared to the world, we're doing good enough in here. That's not the standard. So I think you get the impression, and now we move on to another difficult verse. We understand, is anyone among you suffering? Because he just talked about the persecution of the church. And of course there's going to be suffering. You just saw it on this video. These poor families being chased out of their homes by ISIS under threat of, of a particularly heinous death, whether crucifixion or beheading. 
These people are suffering. Are you suffering? You need to pray, he says. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Kind of the opposite of suffering. Are you in one of those seasons of life where everything's kind of going good? Then pray. Sing praises. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord instead of what we're tempted to do when everything's going well and kind of drift from the Lord. And I'm good. I don't need Him. You may need Him more when things are going well than when things aren't because suffering drives us to His grace. You may need to pray even more fervently when everything's going well. Stop being jealous of the families in church where it seems everything's going well and you can't seem to catch a break. You don't know that their wellness is driving them closer to God. They could be drifting. Don't just pray for those who are suffering and under persecution or sickness. Pray for those in our church that everything seems to be going great. That they would sing praises to the Lord. You know, and if you're suffering... You could sing praises to the Lord there as well. Sometimes our suffering is brought on by our poor attitude. Woe is me. Why don't I have this? How come nobody else has to deal with trouble? Like you're the only one who deals with trouble. Jesus said this world is filled with troubles. So sing praises also. But then this line comes out. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We've had people come forward and we've anointed them with oil. People have come to the elders' meeting and we've anointed them with oil and prayed over them. But if you look more closely at this passage, it says, Is anyone among you sick for any reason? You know, at any given moment in our church, which has a membership of about 600, there's got to be like 200 people sick. Whether it's a cold or flu, all the way to cancer, and everything in between. And if this verse means, is anyone among you sick? It says, then he must call. It's an imperative. It's a command. You must call the elders of the church, and they are to pray. Imperatival command, this verb tense. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We are, if we're reading this at face value, we are disobedient. We would have to have the elders camp out at the church, and we would need Costco-sized drums of oil. And so there's got to be something else going on here. You don't always feel it necessary to come to the elders for prayer. You ask your small group to pray for you, do you not, when you're sick? Or you, you put out a Facebook request. Or you, or you just pray for yourself. For prayer chain, thank you, prayer chain. And indeed, we are to pray for the sick. And in fact, when you tally up all the prayer requests at our small group meetings, half of them seem to be for those who are sick. And then you go to the page of the New Testament and you use your Bible software and you, you, you put in you know prayers for the sick. And this is the only one that comes up. 
And we know Jesus prayed for the sick and healed the sick in miraculous ways. But when you look at the New Testament epistles, Paul says to Timothy, Oh, your stomach hurts? Take a little wine for your stomach. And you think you would find more prayers in the New Testament and the Old Testament for those with sickness because sickness is part of this fallen world. We're sick all the time. We have a prayer board in the back of the office, a whiteboard, and we put all the people who have serious illness so we can pray for them or visit them in the hospital. And we put chaplains in the hospital to pray for the sick. And we go and we visit shut-ins and the swing bed patients. And the sick will always be with us until we get to glory, where there's no more sickness and no more pain and no more suffering. So if this is a call that we are to actually pray for anyone who's sick at any time, this is a pretty tough command to act out. And we don't have enough elders. We need about 50 more if we're going to pull this off. Or maybe there's more here than meets the eye. And in case you tune me out later, I just want to say right now, because commentators and theologians aren't exactly sure what this passage says, if you are sick and you want to come to your elders and be prayed for and anointed with oil, you come. Do you hear me? You come. But let me propose to you that there's a, a broader range of meaning going on here. The word sick in the Greek is asteneo, which means weak. There's other words for sick that only mean sick, and James didn't use that word. In fact, the word he used is most commonly translated weak. And in context, now we're starting to see where James is going with this. Are you under persecution? Are you suffering under the heavy hand of persecution and your own temptation of the flesh, haven't you ever felt spiritually weak where you just can't go on anymore and you don't even know what to pray anymore? Yes, pray when you're suffering and sing praises when you're cheerful, but haven't you ever gotten to that place in life where you don't even know what to pray anymore? Can I get an amen? Amen? amen. Maybe you're in that place today. You're weak. And when you're weak... Spiritually, physical ailment can certainly come in, and physical ailment can also lead to spiritual weakness. I, I just don't have the strength anymore. I feel like giving up. I can't fight the good fight anymore. Or maybe you're spiritually weak when it comes to fighting sin and double-mindedness. Have you ever been in that place? You're just tempted to throw in the towel. Often, it's probably the scariest thing for me as a pastor, when I hear that a pastor has fallen in a big way, usually what has led up to that is he's just like, I just can't do it anymore. And they go out and they sin in some big way just to disqualify themselves. Because to say, I don't have the strength to be a pastor anymore just doesn't look good. And so they resort to... Exactly. I guess I can't be pastor anymore. But your pastors and your elders, they, they, they carry the burdens of the people. 
And you come in maybe once a year or once every five years for a special prayer, but for every one of you, there's 50 people at any given time in a church this size that are really, really struggling and they need help and they need prayer and they need counsel and your pastors and elders love to help them in that way, but it can get tiring because we're men too, made of flesh. We have a residual sin nature as well. And so we're fighting persecution from the outside and persecution from the inside. The word anoint here also isn't the normal Greek word used to anoint, like to anoint a king with oil. This word means to rub with oil. Don't come into the elders expecting a full body massage, though. (laughs) Yes, a full body spiritual massage. I could tell you, though, when I am feeling spiritually and physically weak, that being prayed over, you know, by my wife in a good shoulder massage, wow. A lot of those cares just go away. They don't become such a big deal anymore. And I think that's the sense we're looking at here. Go to your elders. Let them pray to restore you. To ask the Lord to strengthen you and lift you up. To heal your body if it's physical. To heal your soul if it's unconfessed sin, which can certainly drain the strongest spiritual person. And we we see that James brings in this idea that sin might be involved. And then we get all nervous because we're like, well, I don't want to tell somebody who's physically weak that it might be because of their sins. That's what Job's friends did to him. But wasn't... David sapped of his physical vitality when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and kept it secret. In fact, I'll read a psalm about that in in a minute. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So we get a little nervous about this passage because we know the Roman Catholic Church points to this verse as proof of the doctrine or sacrament of extreme unction or the last rites. That if you are sick and on your deathbed, the priest is supposed to come and absolve you of any last remaining sin. The question is, what happens if you sin in between the priest coming and you die, which surely you will? And what if the priest can't make it in time? All these what-if questions. And we know that the extreme charismatics say, anoint with oil and pray, and if you have enough faith, my, my sister-in-law, uh, Jennifer's brother, Mike, his, his wife, Susie, was in a charismatic a Korean church. She was dying of cancer. She had already gone, beaten it twice, two, two rounds of, of chemo 
and radiation for breast cancer. And uh, the third time it came back, she was just done. And we went to visit her, and she said she wanted some theological advice. And she said, my pastor said that I don't want to live bad enough, that I don't have enough faith, and that's why I'm not getting better. Yeah, breaks your heart. These are our fellow believers, though, misinterpreting Scripture. Why then do all of our English translations continue to use the word sick and anointing if weak and administer oil would, would fit better? It's kind of like instant replay in sports. When the official makes the call and they go to the instant replay, unless there's what? Conclusive evidence to overturn the call on the field, you go with the call on the field. And what is the first English translation of the Bible? The King James. And people love their King James. And, and that's when they learned this verse and that's how the verse is special to them. And you go messing with people's translation, you're going to perhaps undermine their faith, or worse, they're not going to buy your new translation. That's tongue-in-cheek. But it's true. It takes a lot of money to write a new Bible translation, and certainly, what's the point in writing one if nobody buys one? And so you just kind of go with the status quo, and then maybe put a margin note or a footnote, or if it's a study Bible... Uh, an alternative explanation to this verse. So, where are we standing from the pulpit here at Country Oaks? Could it mean physical sickness, anoint with oil? Yes. And if that's your understanding, come and we'd be happy to pray for you in that way. If it is spiritual weakness and you just don't even know how to pray for yourself anymore... And you come, and we will pray for you. And we could anoint you with oil, or sometimes I've been known to pray and just work the knots out of somebody's shoulders or hold your hand or just some kind of appropriate special touch. There's power and healing in that in, in some way that I don't fully understand. I have heard many a story of people being prayed for and people felt a heat or some kind of electricity moving through them. And too many people I know, charismatic and not charismatic, have experienced that. So the laying on of hands is very biblical. What I am saying from the pulpit is I don't completely understand how God heals and when He decides to heal. But He says to pray for healing. So we pray for healing by faith. Amen? Amen. So what then does James 5, 13 to 15 mean? In the context, I believe it's mostly talking about this spiritual weakness. It seems to fit best. It's kind of out of left field to say somebody's physically injured, come in and be anointed. It doesn't fit with the whole letter. When you're under persecution and you're suffering, he says, pray. 
when you're cheerful, he says, pray, sing praises. And sometimes following Christ becomes so difficult under the onslaught of the world and our flesh that believers can become weak and feel defeated. I would actually say this is the bulk of the counseling that comes in. The bulk. Pastor, I just at, at the end of my rope, I'm just at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. They're just broken and, and tired and weak and... And often sin is involved. I, 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 I can't seem to say no to, to this particular sin anymore. It's gotten the better of me. Pray for me. Help me. Lift me up in prayer. Physical sickness and sin might be involved. And it's the chicken or the egg. Sometimes you get involved in sin and it leads to physical sickness. And sometimes physical sickness can drag you down and make you so weak that you just give in. And God would have us be compassionate and not look down our noses and say, oh, go get your act together. Because I tell you, your day is coming. I don't hope it on you. I wish it doesn't. But we are weak and we are frail in our own strength. The Bible says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So have compassion for the physically weak, but certainly the spiritually and emotionally weak too. Is sickness always caused by sin? What do you think the answer is? No, absolutely not. But James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Sometimes there is sin behind our physical illness. Sometimes. Unconfessed sin can definitely lead to spiritual and emotional weakness and can often lead to physical and psychological sickness. If you come and ask for prayer because you're feeling weak, you need to be open to to the idea that the person praying for you or the counselor, we may need to explore, is there unconfessed sin in your life? Sometimes you make yourself sick through envy or jealousy. Sometimes you make yourself sick over bitterness, over unforgiveness. These things can just rot you from the inside out. Amen? Amen. Not in a good way, amen, but amen, yeah. I think we've all been there at one point. You get in a funk. And there's nothing. You go to the doctor, they do the blood test, they say everything checks out, and you're like, I feel like crud. I can barely function. What is going on? Yeah? Remember in verse 15, it says, If, if you've committed sins. If, that's an important if. It's a if-then clause is in the Greek. A little more Greek today, a little more Greek lesson. If-then clause, I hope you don't mind. If-then clauses are called conditional statements. If-then. In English, we only have one kind of if-then. If this happens, then this happens. In the Greek, depending on the tense of the verb and the if clause and the tense of the verb and the then clause, it can mean different things. It can mean, if this happens, then this will happen 100% of the time. Or it could be, hey, if, pig, if pigs fly, 
then I'll go out with you. What are the chances? Zero. If you're the last man on earth, then maybe, right? You're saying I've got a chance. There's a third if-then clause, a third kind, third-class conditional. If, maybe, could happen, might not happen, could be the case, might not be. Guess which case this is. It's that third-class conditional. Maybe, there might be sins there. Check. Check, there may be unconfessed sins and bitterness. All kinds of things can lead to physical weakness and spiritual weakness. David, after he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, eventually after he confessed his sins, he wrote Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And I think when he was writing it, it came out more like this from his heart. Oh, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And yet we also have the example of Job, right? Who had great sickness and his friends said, you must have sinned. Job, tell us, where's the sin? God would never punish anyone to this degree unless there was sin involved. And he's like, I can't think of anything. I don't know. In fact, if God would let me question him, I think he made a mistake here. But I know I'm not supposed to question God, so I'm in a bind, I'm in a dilemma. And we know because we know the beginning of the story, what Job doesn't know, that has nothing to do with Job. God was glorifying himself through Job by demonstrating to Satan that Job loved God, not because God blessed him materially, but for who God is. And Satan said, well, I don't think so. And God said, well, we'll prove it. We'll let you persecute him. And Job didn't fold under spiritual weakness. And then he said, well, that's because, Satan said, that's because you let me persecute his family and not him, as if Job didn't care about his family. And he said, let me touch his his body with illness, and he will turn his back on you. And God said, okay. Maybe your spiritual weakness or physical weakness is a test. Indeed, most likely it is. I don't know that Satan went to God directly like the story and said, let's test the faith of so-and-so. All that to say there may be sin in your heart, there may not be. Or maybe it wasn't the sin that led to the suffering, but the way you're responding to the suffering now has become sinful. The question then is, is it the elders or the oil or the faith that restores the weak, the sick, or the sinner? Do we need it? Does it have to be an elder? Does does there need to be oil? Does there have to be a mountain of faith? James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I've highlighted the one another. That could be anyone who 
has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Confess your sins to one another. You don't necessarily have to come to the elders. If you, whoever you sin against directly, go to them and confess your sins to them. If it's a private sin that wasn't really committed against someone, confess it to God, but it's good to confess your sins to one another. Come in and talk to a pastor, talk to an elder, talk to your spouse. Don't keep it in, don't keep it hidden. It's exactly what Satan would have you do, is keep it in the dark. Make you feel like you're going through it all alone. You're the only one who sins. You're the only one who struggles with this. That's nonsense. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Effective here, probably in your translations, has all kinds of adjectives in that place. Why? Because, one more Greek lesson, in the Greek it says the praying prayer of a righteous man. The Hebrews love to do this, the way they'd speak. They'd take the same word and double it up for emphasis. In the story of Joseph, it was, here comes this dreamer of dreams, this dreaming dreamer. So what's he mean by this praying prayer? It's, it's effective because you don't stop praying. You, pl- you pray with urgency and with fervency and with passion and expectancy that God will answer your prayers. Of a righteous man, are there any righteous among us? Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. But we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ have the righteousness of Christ. So you can go and get prayer from anyone who's a follower of Christ and has put their faith in Christ. The faith, the righteousness of that man, his prayer, her prayer can accomplish much. I don't have any special powers. I've prayed for people to get better, and they have. I've prayed for people to get better, and they haven't. I don't think it was my my faith. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Wait, wait, he was this great prophet who did great miracles. No, the emphasis is on he was a man with a nature like ours. Yes, he did amazing things for God, and God did amazing things through Elijah, but he wasn't some kind of superhero. He wasn't an X-Men. He wasn't some mutant with special powers that we don't have. It was all dependent on prayer, because it's God who has the power to work through our prayers. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and did not rain on the earth for three or six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Which is a perfect metaphor if what James is saying is, is any of you spiritually parched, dry, weak, come and have somebody who is currently spiritually strong, Pray for you what you don't have the strength to pray for yourself. That's okay to do. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, again, this is in the context of you are spiritually weak, you're a brother, you've strayed from the truth. Don't just go, "Ah, well, they're weak. They were bogging down the church anyways. 
Better off without him. Sure glad it wasn't me. For whatever reason, this brother or sister decided not to come in for prayer. Go after them. If one turns him back, go find the one sheep that's left the 99. Go get him. Go get her. Bring him back. Don't let him suffer alone at home or out in the world. And let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is an encouragement for us to go do something that is really hard, and that's to go track down a lost sheep. You know, when we think of Elijah, remember when he defeated the prophets of Baal through prayer on Mount Carmel? Fire came down and burnt up the offering. And then he slew a bunch of the prophets with the sword. Now there's a mighty man of righteousness. That's the kind of guy God's talking about we need to go to for prayer. Not little old me, little old Joe or Josephine Christian. I need to go to the really spiritually powerful people. Yeah, read the next chapter. Where does Elijah end up? Jezebel's chasing him down and he goes and hides in the mountain and says, God, just let me die here. I don't want to live. It's just me. I'm the only believer left. And God gives him rest and nourishes his soul, nourishes his body. Ravens bring him food. And in that still, small voice, God says, there's still 8,000 that haven't bowed the knee. You're not alone, beloved. If you feel alone today and defeated and weak, and sin has gotten the best of you, or physical illness has just drained you of all strength, and you feel all alone. You're not alone. You are not alone. The Lord will not leave you or forsake you. Come and get prayer today. Don't let your pride keep you from calling on the name of the Lord and calling for help. So, who should pray for you and when? Any Christian can and should pray for anyone who is struggling with weakness, illness, or sin because it is the power of God that restores, heals, and saves. Not my seminary degree. Not my good works. Not my mustard seed faith. It's the power of God, the person I am beseeching in prayer to help you. Prayer is the point because God has the power and it's the prayer that unleashes the power. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, that takes us to the end of the letter. And if I could wrap up James in a nutshell, it's the last slide here. As believers justified by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, because we're saved, because of the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ, in light of our salvation, our reasonable response is to humbly pursue the kingdom of God in the face of trials and persecution, both outside and inside. 
rejecting worldly wisdom and fighting against double-mindedness, speaking truth and practicing brotherly love, helping the poor, praying for the weak or sick, and even restoring the wayward sinner. It's a tall order, huh? But that's the Christian life right there. I love this letter. I understand it better. I hope you do too. It got relegated to the back of our Bibles. Martin Luther didn't particularly like the epistle, called it an epistle of straw. And yet, we know that the earliest collection of scriptures went Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, James. It was later that James got moved to the back of the Bible. Paul in Galatians called James one of the three pillars of the church. James, Peter, John. Paul called himself the least of the apostles. The Catholic Church has elevated Peter as the Pope, but the Protestant Church has elevated Paul as the Pope without a hat, Pope without a mitre. Maybe if heavy persecution hit and they were taking our Bibles and I had to run and could only take one epistle with me, maybe I would tear out the pages of James and take, take it with me. It's impressively has opened up our hearts and showed us what the problem is, this double-mindedness, and then gives us the antidote in Christ to be hearers of the Word and doers of the Word. Next week, we have some baptisms, and in the remaining time during the sermon, we'll cast the vision for where we're going next in the Word of God. So you'll want to be there for that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father of lights, from whom every good and perfect gift comes. Of course, the greatest, most perfect gift, Jesus Christ, your Son, bringing salvation to us. The Word made flesh, sent to live the Word and explain the Word to us. Thank you for your grace as we humbly try to walk this very difficult walk. In fact, as James says, impossible, and yet it's the goal. But with man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Thank you that your righteousness covers us, and we don't need to generate a righteousness of our own. Thank you we have the hope of heaven, where the struggle will end one day. We'll be completely free from sin, And we will behold your glory face to face. No sickness, no suffering, no persecution. Every tear wiped away. Until that day, Lord, may we look to your word inspired by God, whether it's James or Peter or Paul or John or Jude or any of the authors, because all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped. Lord, we love you. We want to glorify and magnify you to this world. We can only do that by your grace and by your power. Lord, I call anyone forward this morning who is weak,
under illness, spiritual weakness, physical illness. They just don't feel like they can go on. They wouldn't leave today without prayer from somebody. I ask this in Jesus' name.